For those of you who are new, a brief introduction to the book of Malachi. Um, For those of you who enjoy history, uh, a brief introduction. Uh, The story of Malachi, uh, I think, really begins back uh, during the Babylonian captivity. Some of you have heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel got into the lion's den because he was taken from Judah as part of the Babylonian captivity and transported to Babylon. He was part of the first deportation that occurred in 605 B.C. There were three that would follow, one in 597, one in 586, and one in 582 B.C. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar. He raised up the Babylonians in order to execute his judgment on his people. That's why he he called upon Nebuchadnezzar to come and to execute his judgment on his people. So there they are in captivity. And we fast forward. 586, 576, 566, 556, 546, 540. Slow the clock down. 539, there is a new superpower. The Persian Empire is at its height. Led by Cyrus, they overthrow the Babylonians in 539, establishing themselves as the new number one. A year later... Cyrus issues a law in 538, allowing the people who have been in captivity, those who wish to return home, they may return home. And so, this mass exodus begins to take place. And you would think that the first thing that they would do upon returning is to rebuild the temple that was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city in 586, but they don't. They don't rebuild it. It lays in rubble. They make excuses week after week, month after month, year after year. Eighteen years go by, and they still have not rebuilt the temple. It still lays in ruin. God sends Haggai in 520 B.C. to come to preach a series of messages to help motivate them, to essentially say, hey, get your crap together right now. Enough's enough. You've been making excuses of why God's not the number one priority in your life. I don't care about your intramural sports team and the playoff run you're making or whatever it is. You need to make God the priority that he deserves to be. Paraphrase, I'm sure. And so they respond positively. They rebuilt the temple. And life is good for a while. 516 B.C. it gets rebuilt and... Then in 485, 45, there's a new change to Persian policy. Xerxes is now the supreme leader of the Persian Empire. And Xerxes implements a new taxation program. The Persian Empire, it continues to grow and to grow and to grow, and with it, the need for more money. So how do you come up with that? Well, you increase taxes. That's how you come up with it. And Xerxes shifts the tax burden to non-ethnic Persian entities, i.e. the provinces. And Judah feels this incredibly. Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, recalls the effects, debt slavery at an unprecedented level, the confiscation of property, famine in the land. It seems like a very long time ago since Haggai came. Back in 520, their spiritual zeal and love for the Lord, it wanes. And then it's now 460 B.C. and God sends Malachi to come. And he opens this letter telling them about 
the undeserving love that God has for them. If you're here tonight, God loves you. Those of you who are Christians, God loves you. Those of you who are not Christians, who have not submitted to the lordship of our great God and King, He loves you too. And He is calling you to submit to His lordship, to turn, to repent of your sins. He's saying, follow me. But He loves you too. And that's how He opens this letter. And then as as we saw last week in verses 6 to 14, He gives a series of indictments against the people. Specifically the leader. Specifically the priest. The priests are dropping the ball big time. They are not honoring God. They are treating God as a second class citizen. As a nuisance. They are cheating God. See, people are coming to worship God. And the priest's job was to screen the, the sacrifices, the offerings that they would come and give to God as gifts. And instead of saying, hey, Josh and Rachel, you, you can't bring that lamb to God as a gift. Well, why not? Well, because it's missing two of its legs. Like, they should have been there. They should have said, no, that's, you need to be giving God your best. You're not giving God your best. But instead they said, is it alive? Yeah, it's just sleeping. It's not sleeping. Yeah, sure, why not? Go ahead, give that to God. Bring that in. The priests are dropping the ball. They are fumbling all over the place. They are showing more honor for the governor, for earthly relationships than they are for God and their well they're just demonstrating religious activity they're going through the motions they're coming and worshiping God when in reality they're just worshiping themselves they're a joke and God is incredibly upset with some of them he's furious with some of them So, chapter 2, verse 1, we continue our story. And now, O priest, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Oftentimes we like to think that we're the exception to the rule. That we can cheat God. That we can worship Him with our lips, even though our hearts are far from Him. We can say, oh yeah, God's number one in my life. He's the number one thing. You say that all day long, it doesn't necessarily make it true. So Isaiah says, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If you're not going to listen, I'm going to drop the hammer on you. God says, if you're going to ignore the things that I've just indicted against you through my servant Malachi, things are going to go poorly for you. And you're not exempt. You are not exempt. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're Baptist or Southern Baptist or Methodist or United Methodist. It doesn't matter. You're not exempt. It's not like, oh, well, I've got this thing worked out with God, so I don't have to do this, whatever this is. Maybe it's a particular sin that you like to indulge in. Or maybe it's, well, I've got this thing worked out with God. I only need to go to church like once a month or 
I don't need to be a part of small group, or I've got this worked out, and I, I, that's, that's okay. Whatever it may be, I don't know what it is. But no one is exempt. The priests are not exempt. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, the word heart is used 814 times in the Old Testament. I thought that was a lot. This is kind of like one of the little facts I throw out in the sermon. Uh, heart, like I want you to understand heart. When he says, if you won't take this to heart, in the original language, uh, the heart was what may be called like your command center of a person's life, where knowledge is collected, where it is hmm, considered, and where decisions are then made for the directions of one's life. And I want to distinguish and differentiate between how it's often used in English, this heart, and how it's used here in the Bible. Because in English, in American English, think of heart, you know, there's songs like, listen to your heart. There's a... Did, was I was was that did I hit it? Yep. I did. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. <laughs> Praise God. You know, people come and they give advice, and, and they're really well-meaning most of the time. But they're like, Josh, man, you just you just gotta listen to your heart, brother. Just 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 what's your heart telling you? It's ironic because the prophet Jeremiah in the seventeenth chapter, in the ninth verse, he actually says, "The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it?" So much for pop culture advice. Some of you are like, okay, I'm definitely not going to say that anymore. So, <laughs> If you won't take it to heart, if you won't listen, if you won't take it to heart, to, to take it to heart, it, it means to determine a course of action in response to one's knowledge or awareness of something. Okay, what's the something? Well, it's verses 6 to 14. He's just laid a serious indictment against the priest. Listen, you're showing more honor for earthly relationships than you are for your heavenly father. Like, does anybody have a problem with that? Like, how jacked up is that? If you're not going to listen, if you're not going to take it to heart, take it to heart, you could also say to, to remember. And remember what? Take what to heart? It's verses 6 to 14. That's what it is. Well, then things are going to go very poorly for you. Then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. This reference to curse is an allusion or a reference to the covenant curses found in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy where Israel is warned about what will happen if they fail to obey God. God will open the floodgates of disaster, that every aspect of their life will be plagued by trouble. Think of it like a watering hose, and, and, and God, is, God is holding it kinked. Listen, there is a cause and effect. If you obey me, wonderful. If you don't, you, I, I will release that, and you will experience that. Not because I'm a mean God, because I love you. And I love you so much that you will experience consequences. Like a father who disciplines his child. You've heard it. Like, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. That never made any sense to me when I was little. It makes more sense to me now. 
Like God loves us. This isn't because God is angry or mean or cruel. It's because He loves us. He loves His people. That if they're, they're not going to listen, if they're not going to take heed, take to heart what Malachi has just indicted them for, well, then they're going to experience discipline. They're going to experience some of these curses. They're going to be plagued by trouble. That's what it means here. And he says, indeed, they already have. As we'll see later on, back in in verse 9, that some of the people, they've already been humiliated before the other nations. Verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on their faces, on your faces, the dung of your offering, and you shall be taken away with it. It's interesting. Um, I do a responsive reading. This is, I preached this sermon Friday down in Galax. Uh, anybody from Galax in here? No? Anybody know where Galax is? You do? You guys? I didn't know. I'm just jumping in the car. I'm along for the ride. I spent five hours in the car on Friday. If I went down, I preached this to this, this sermon um, to the 424 Transportation Company, and I preached today to the 639th Transportation Company in Bedford, and during the responsive reading, every time we got to verse 3, it just got really quiet, as if everyone's reading, they're like, okay, I think there's a typo, because it's talking about dung getting wiped on people's faces. So everyone got really quiet when we read that part. And I, and I don't want you to walk out of here, and like all you remember is like, hey, how was the sermon? How'd church go at Lynchburg City? Oh man, I missed it tonight, or whatever. Oh yeah, I don't really remember a lot. I just remember this part where God is going to wipe poop all over people's faces. <laughs> As soon as I read this text, I'm like, oh man, I, I hope that's not all they remember. So, so let me break this down. Stay with me, okay? Stay with me. They're going to wipe. It's not just them that's going to experience the hurt. The effects go beyond them. Their descendants will experience. Oftentimes when we fail to obey God, we disobey God, we don't realize that the consequences may like ripples in a pond trickle and affect more than just us. And that can be true in a lot of areas where we disobey, where we sin, where consequences don't just affect us. Now other people, other lives are impacted by them. And that's what he's saying here. This curse would affect the descendants of the priest. Back in verse 7, it says they had polluted God's name. They despised it. He likens to their gifts being brought. You're bringing these gifts before God. Some of these gifts you're bringing, these animals, they're sick and they're dead. I'm not sure if it said dead, but but they're sick and they're they're not good gifts to God. Would you bring that to your governor's table if he invited you over for a dinner? You're invited, a presidential dinner, right? Would you bring that type of gift? No, of course not. And the governor, he would be like, get that off my table. I don't want that associated with me because uh, that's just so shameful and so disgusting. So he says, they've polluted his name back in verse 7. So he will figuratively wipe and smear poop on their faces. He will figuratively pollute and disqualify them for service by spreading the dung of these animals on them. They bring the animals to offering as gifts. Leviticus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 29, they talk about, okay, so the animals are going to come, they bring them as gifts, and of course animals poop in peace, so we got to do something about that. So they would actually have a special method, they take it out and they'd go and they would discard it properly. 
He's saying, I'm going to wipe that stuff that you take out, that you burn, that's really gross, I'm actually going to wipe it on your face. And just as it is by law required to be discarded, so you too will be taken away from the sanctuary and burned. You will be taken away in utter disgrace. I mean, this is such a graphic imagery, but it's used intentionally to show the revulsion that God has. He is angry. He's not happy. He is furious with them for their behavior, for their hypocritical religious activity that they call worship. You think you're the priest? You think you're going to get a pass? You think you can continue this type of conduct, doing these things that you know are not right, that are not okay? You can't. You think no one else knows? I know! And I will remove you. I will remove you. There is no exemption for you just because you're a priest, because you're one of the leaders. There is no exemption for us. Like, oh, but I'm a prayer leader. I'm on student leadership. God's a little bit more understanding because I'm really busy or whatever it is. When it comes to disobedience versus obedience, there is no excuse. There is no exemption. The priests are not exempt. You're not exempt when it comes to obeying God. And so this is what he says in verse 4. And we're going to unpack verse 4 here now. Verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. He's got this covenant with Levi. And as I studied this verse, I realized I learned a lot about different covenants in seminary and graduate school. And for those of you who are not really sure of covenant, I think there are some similarities to, to a marriage covenant. A covenant is like a promise. You, you make a covenant. In fact, uh, the membership covenant that Jordan Ginn that you signed is actually called a membership covenant. I'm, I'm making a, a pledge to serve and love and worship Jesus with this group of people. Yeah. So I remember learning about covenants in grad school. learned about the Noahic covenant. Okay, of course, it's you know, the rainbow, and that's, that's God's covenant. It's God's his promise, God's promise to us that he'll never destroy the earth in a like fashion. Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant. Really thankful for that, right? Really thankful for the new covenant, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, and that true faith always involves repentance, a turning from our sin, a hatred for the things that God hates, a love for the things that God loves, a desire to grow in holiness, a desire to be more like Jesus. How is that possible? Because the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36 is that He will replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and His words, not mine, cause us to walk in His ways. That's great news, the new covenant promise. But this is about the Levitical covenant. And as I'm studying this passage this past week, I realized I never remembered learning about this. Well, one thing we do at Lynchburg City Church is we learn the Bible. So we're going to learn about it right now. To understand the Levitical covenant, this covenant with Levi that Malachi mentions here in verse 4, to understand his reference to it, 
I think it's significant and important that we probably take a history lesson. This whole story starts Abraham, 2200 B.C., 2100 B.C. You can pick whatever date you want. He calls Abraham out of the land of Ur. He has a son. His son, his name is Isaac. He has a son. His name is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. 12 sons. Most people know about his son, Joseph. That's what happens when Christian Bale portrays you in a movie regarding of how much courage that movie may or may not lack. So, most people are familiar with Joseph, the coat of many colors, but Joseph had 11 brothers. One of the brothers, surprise, surprise, it's Levi. Levi, his story, and Levi's, like so many of these Bible characters, not exactly an upstanding dude, as you're about to find out. The, the story with Levi begins, I, I, we see in Genesis chapter 34. Do some of you guys have sisters? Anybody have sisters in here? Okay, this story may or may not upset you. They have a sister, her name's Dinah. And Dinah goes out with a guy named Shechem. He's a Canaanite prince, and he doesn't exactly treat her by the liberty way. In fact, while they're out and about, Shechem actually takes advantage of her and rapes her. Perfect timing. (laughs) Takes advantage and rapes her. Well, for those of you who are brothers, you would be pretty upset. I have a sister, and I would be upset to hear that. It would be very upsetting. Well, her brothers are upset. Shechem comes, he says, listen, listen, I want to marry her, I'll marry her, okay? So, the boys say, come here, come here. What do you think? What do you think? Why would you? Okay, I got you. Tell you what, you can marry her. Now, they have no intention of letting her marry him. They say, yeah, you can marry, you can marry him. Um, He's like, awesome. He's like, is that it? No, that's not it. You need to be circumcised. He says, well, say what? Yeah, snip, snip. You need to be circumcised. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, yeah, sure. No, 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 not just you. Your whole town, your whole village has to be circumcised. Well, that might be a tough sell, but okay, we'll do it. Well, Levi and Simeon, they have no intention of allowing this to happen. So while all the men of the village are recuperating after their operation, they go in and they hack them to pieces and they kill every single man in that village. Not so much the Liberty Way, but that's what they did. And while other brothers were involved in the story, God deals specifically with Simeon and Levi as the ringleaders because of their bloodthirsty revenge. God curses them with landlessness. In Joshua 19, the tribe of Simeon, we see it absorbed into the southern tribe of Judah. But Levi has kind of a come-from-behind story. Hundreds of years later, after the Egyptian slavery, they're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to grab the Ten Commandments. He comes back down. They built a golden calf. Unbelievable. Well, this is not working. This is not happening. So Moses calls. He rallies. He says, anyone who is for God on me right now, the tribe of Levi, rallies. Boom, just like that. And they execute judgment. 
on those people who were behind that. And because of their response, and this would have been Levi's great, 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 great grandkids, how they responded to this situation, Moses tells them and assures them that God's blessing will be upon them. Moses, his brother, was Aaron. People familiar with Aaron because refer to him as the first priest. But after, shortly after Aaron's death, in Numbers chapter 20, the first mention in Numbers 25 of this covenant of Levi. That's what we're talking about. Malachi makes the reference in verse 4, this covenant of Levi. And now we've, we've traced it to this point in history. In Numbers 25, there's another golden calf type situation that happens in the wilderness. The people begin worshiping the Canaanite god of the storm, Baal, and indulging in gross sexual immorality. But there was one among them who stands up for holy God. And that is Aaron's grandson, Phineas. And I will read the text from the 25th chapter of Numbers, starting in the 11th verse. I'll read just three verses here. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron. The priest had, had turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And we sang a song, he is jealous for me. When scripture speaks of jealousy, it's not in the sense of speaking out of envy, but of God's determination to preserve from corruption his relationship with his wayward people. It's the other side of his love which motivates him to exercise at times his wrath against any threat to the covenant relationship that he has established for the benefit of his people, for our benefit. So Phineas, Aaron's grandson in Numbers 25, he's commended because he acted with that same type of zeal to defend and to preserve from corruption God's relationship with Israel. That was the kind of zeal, that, that was the kind of attitude that the Lord was looking for from the priest in Malachi's day. But that wasn't their attitude. They had a careless attitude. The Lord was oh, such a wearisome, such a burden. He was a nuisance. Like as long as he kept his mouth shut and didn't say anything, okay, we're good, God. But don't you ask anything of me. Don't you demand anything of me. I want to live my life. I want to do it how I want to do it. Like Esau. They treated God's name as worthless. They traded something so valuable like his birthright for a bowl of soup. That's how they had dishonored God. God was looking for an attitude like Phineas. Oh, by the way, that's going to be hard to have sometimes. God was looking for, and is looking for, even today, 
from his followers. For us to have a type of holy zeal, a type of love and devotion to God, the way Phineas did in his church today to preserve his name. To protect the church from savage wolves, you might say. My desire is that we would be like a Phineas. But it's hard. It's difficult. It's unpopular. Sometimes it's awkward and uncomfortable to be a Phineas. Imagine in Numbers chapter 25 when he confronts. I mean, these are not only his countrymen, but these are a lot of these people are his relatives, his family. And he has to say, what you're doing, it's not right. You need to stop. What you're doing is not okay. You're worshiping the Canaanite god of the storm. God alone is the god of the storm. Read Psalms 29. What are you doing indulging this gross sexual, sexual immorality? What is wrong? You need to stop. I, I doubt that got him a lot of Facebook likes on his page. Sin is so serious. God takes sin very seriously. In that story, he actually kills. Phineas actually puts to death one of the individuals a part of this. That's how serious it is. That we would be like a Phineas. That we would be willing to confront people. Today, so many Christians are just pansies. Oh, I don't want to be too judgmental. Can't really say that. Uh, they might get offended over this. They'll get offended over that. No, that's, that's, that's too, too racial. Whatever. I'm... That we might be like a Phineas. Oh, I pray that some of you would have that type of courage. That you would be willing to confront people. That's one of the most unloving things you can actually do is not speak up, especially for those of you who are Christians, to not speak up and confront other Christians over serious issues of unrepentant sin. That's the issue uh, in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's that's one of the the, the beautiful things about the church today. You know, Lynchburg City Church, people say, do you practice church discipline? Yes, we do. You don't get a pass because you watch hockey with Joe. You don't get a pass because you play hockey with Joe. You don't get a pass because you give a lot of money to the church. You don't get a pass. I was saying the membership class, say, my, I take being just and fair very seriously. And one of the beautiful things about the church, about Lynchburg City Church, is that someone said once, I like Lynchburg City Church, I just don't like how accountable it is. Man, that's music to my ears. Because at way too many places, you slip in, you slip out. No one really gets to know you. You're not accountable to anyone. That's, I think, one of the beautiful things that we see about the church is that... Um, we're not afraid. It, it might be awkward. It might be uncomfortable. But quite frankly, you've said, heard me say this a lot of times, I don't care whether I'm going to make you feel awkward or whether you feel uncomfortable. I could care less because I'm more concerned about your eternal place in the next life than I am with whether it's weird or whatever. I care a whole lot more about that. Solomon says it in a different way. He says, better are wounds from a friend than kisses from an enemy. Oh, that we might be a Phineas willing to confront and call out evil for what it is when it happens. And these people, I imagine, they think, oh, well, I'm the exemption. Everyone likes to think they're the exemption. Drives me crazy. Well, 
We're not just part of the covenant. We're part of the Levitical covenant. We're priests. Don't you know? I think which is why the people were so surprised when he says, what? What are you talking about? Back in the last week's sermon, they were so surprised at this indictment. What do you mean? What's going on? No, just want you to know we're, we're priests. Uh, it's like today. P- people think, oh, well, I'm part of the new covenant. Oh, Jesus, he's a loving God. Oh, Jesus, he's a forgiving God. He understands. I've got this worked out. No, you don't. See, it's great if you're a Christian and you're part of the new covenant. But there is obedience that God requires of us. And so many people think they're just going to do whatever they want in this life and then just a nice, easy death and just float into eternity. And many people will stand there one day before our great God and King, before the creator of the universe, and they will be shocked when he says, why do you call me Lord? Away from me, I never knew you. That is the scariest thing I think that you could ever hear. But I think it is a real picture of the stakes. They're very high. God doesn't discipline. God doesn't say, listen, if you're not going to hear what I'm saying, I'm going to curse you because I'm mean or I'm vindictive. It's because I love you. I love you so much and what you're doing. It's wrong. It's not okay. I don't approve of that. And because I love you, I'm not going to allow you to continue this type of behavior, this type of disobedience against me. I love you too much to allow you to do that, for you to think, oh, everything's just okay. It's not okay. And he uses, oftentimes, Phineas's in our lives as a means of communicating such truths that we might be like a Phineas and that we might respond positively when we hear from such Phineas types that we take to heart what he says and then we repent Holy Father we love you we worship you we praise you you are a good God we're nothing without you I pray for those of us in here who share too much in common with the priest too much in common to these people who have been dishonoring you, too much in common to these people who have been treating you as if you're a nuisance, as if you're a burden, as if you get in the way, who simultaneously claim to love you, who simultaneously claim to be your follower. I pray that you would grant them a heart of repentance, that you would show them the areas that maybe they are and have, including myself, God, too much in common with these individuals. And for those of us, I pray that you would help us to have the type of courage. Oh, that I think about when Phineas confronted everyone, that probably was really scary. That we would have that type of courage when we come across unrepented sin in the lives of people we love. That we would be willing to say, I don't think that's right. What do you think Jesus thinks of that? Maybe even just asking that question. So, I pray as St. Augustine prayed so long ago, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us, enable us to do and to be what right looks like, to be a Phineas. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In your name, King Jesus, amen.